Good morning, Mill City. Good to see all of you. And uh, if you're brand new with us, my name is Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. We also want to take a moment and welcome everybody joining us online. Can we just welcome those? We're so glad that you're with us. Thank you for joining us online. We hope that you can join us in person sometime soon. Uh, Before we jump into the message today, we've got a couple of announcements. Uh, The first one uh, is that starting in August, mid-August, we will be uh, adding a gathering. And so uh, right now, two gatherings will be adding a third. Uh, If you've been around throughout the spring, um, we have been at capacity some weeks, setting up extra chairs in both gatherings. And uh, we want to create more space, uh, create more space for people to encounter Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. And uh, and so, so more details on all of that, exact times coming and all of that. But I also want to say this. Um, it will take uh, more people to, to facilitate uh, another gathering uh, in kids, uh, in, in welcoming at the doors or hosting here within the auditorium, some load in and load out, all those types of things. And so if you're not yet on the lift team and you call Mill City Church your home, would you consider uh, jumping onto the lift team? Uh, the best way to do that, really the, the on-ramp into that is going through Connect. So if you've not gone through Connect before, it will happen once a month. Uh, it happens every month, but it happens once a month through the summer. And so if you can uh, find one of those to come to in order to uh, jump onto the team in August would be really helpful. Uh, and they happen on uh, Sunday evening. Uh, then our, they're usually the fourth Sunday of the month. This month it is the third Sunday because of Memorial Day weekend. So next Sunday is Connect. And uh, so if you are interested in Connect, you can mark that on your connection card. And uh, we'd love to reach out to you, give you details, and, and, uh, and we do provide dinner. So if you would uh, let us know so we can make sure that we have the right amount of food for everybody. Uh, so that's coming up. That'll be exciting, and we'll uh, do that starting in the fall. And then uh, secondly, I am excited to announce the total of the uh, So That commitments. If you're new with us, over the course of this last spring, uh, we had started our very first uh, building initiative, uh, raising funds to be able to move into a permanent space in the future. So, um, and so we've been talking about that, people, we've been praying about that, leaning into the direction of the Lord for us in that. And, um, and so, so the total, are you ready? So the goal The goal was a minimum of $4 million commitments over the course of the next couple of years. And the total committed as of this morning, $4,282,831.92, everybody. Yeah. So well done uh, and, and so exciting. Praise God. And our goal, like I mentioned just a moment ago, was a, was a minimum of $4 million because uh, the goal is to, in the end, have as little debt as possible. And so uh, the more that is there, the uh, easier that will become. And so uh, there's 
and continued opportunities to participate over the cor course of the next couple of years if you're continuing to pray about it or to think about it or God brings something to mind. And, uh, and we will also be giving updates. We're actively looking for property, for a building, and uh, we'll keep you updated on what's happening as that moves along. Um, but thank you to everybody. It's going to take all of us, and uh, we just want to take a moment and praise God. Can we just do that? Thank God. Thank God. Thank God. So as we jump into the message today, I don't know if you've ever had somebody ask you um, if you could have lunch with anybody, who would it be? And oftentimes what we think about when we get that question is somebody who maybe is famous that we've seen on a platform or we've read in a book or uh, maybe it's, it's a, a favorite, we've seen them on a screen or, or something. Like we, we know them in a public setting, but to, to know them or understand them in a private setting uh, we would love to be able to experience that. What, what, see them in an in a unplanned setting versus a, a, a scripted setting or, or something like that. I, when several years ago, um, I had the opportunity to, end, to spend three days, a close friend and I uh, were able to go to Montana and spend three days with Eugene Peterson. He's the writer of the message uh, uh, paraphrases of the Bible, and um, he and his wife live on a lake in Montana, and we got invited, just the two of us, to spend three days and uh, stay at their house. And, and, and I really respected and admired him, not only through what he did with the message, but he's a pastor for 30 years. He wrote 35 books. I had read most of them and was so appreciative of his investment and the things that he was communicating that to be able to sit across a table from him and his wife and experience those types of moments, you learn things that you can't always learn in a book or uh, in a larger setting and a, and a public gathering. So today we're starting a series called Jesus Conversations. And there's plenty of stories throughout the Bible, which we should highlight and we do need to learn and, and we lean into, where Jesus is in a public setting and maybe he's the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching a message, or he's in the synagogue, or he's telling a story, a parable. Uh, it's a teaching moment, uh, but there are plenty of stories throughout the Gospels where they are, they are small, they're between one, Jesus and one person, or Jesus and a small group. They are unplanned. Uh, they're not uh, like, a, okay, we're coming to the temple to hear a message or something like that. So uh, starting today, we're going to dive into some of those more candid, uh, less planned, uh, spontaneous moments. And today we're going to start in John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. It says, At dawn, he, meaning Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Now you might think, Aaron, this seems like a teaching uh, setting, and it's true, but uh, it's about to get interrupted and about to become a spontaneous moment. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. 
At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So here we have a teaching moment, gets interrupted. It's kind of a larger group or somewhat of a larger group. And it starts to dwindle down till it is a interaction between Jesus and this woman. I want to take a moment to uh, unpack and work our way through this passage. Uh, we have what seems like a normal time of gathering to teach, uh, similar to what we might do here on a Sunday. But all of a sudden it gets interrupted, and it gets interrupted by the religious leaders of the day. And they bring in this woman caught in adultery. So I wonder if you can't just imagine this disheveled, maybe half-dressed woman who's being drugged into, probably uh, in a sense of against her will, thinking about all the eyes. I'm sure every eye that she kind of feels and see, she sees, she feels. She feels the, the shame. She's feeling the guilt. She's maybe trying to cover her head, maybe along with the rest of her body. And here it is all of a sudden this like interruption moment. And the teachers of the law appeal to the law and call for the death penalty for this woman. In the law of Moses, there was a law for somebody caught in the act of adultery to be put to death, but... That law required two eyewitnesses. So if we think a little more deeply into the story because of that, I wonder what had been going on at this, up to this moment or even right before the moment when she's caught in adultery. I wonder if we have some peeping Pharisees in the story who are saying, not only do we need to maybe know that this is going on, but we also need to get some eyewitnesses of this. So, uh, you know, I'll be on this window, you be on that window, and we'll, we'll just kind of, you know, we, we got to be able to see it so that we can verify it as the, she gets brought in so that this can be what is going on. And they're, at the end of the day, they have no care for this woman because their goal is not even to somehow catch the woman. At the end of the day, they're trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to trap him. We don't have the man in the story because if she was caught in the act of adultery, that means there was two people there. Now, there's lots of potential reasons for that, one of them being the ways that men and women were treated in the first century. And in this particular case, maybe the man, man was off the hook, but the woman wasn't. Or maybe somehow the Pharisees set the man up for this or asked him to do this for them in order to create the scenario where they could become eyewitnesses and they could trap Jesus. We don't know, but nonetheless, here is this unscripted, wild, unexpected, what's Jesus going to do? How's this going to go? Kind of moment. And they're suspecting that Jesus might say, don't worry about it, which would tell the people to ignore what was in the law of Moses which the Pharisees were trying to somehow discredit Jesus. And then we have this, which he doesn't do. Instead, he, instead of responding to their question, he kneels down. 
And he starts writing in the dust, which was a common practice for a rabbi without a chalkboard or a whiteboard or a computer uh, to be able to just write something or draw a picture of something. So we don't exactly, we don't know actually what he wrote in this moment. He could have been doodling for all we know. We could, maybe he wrote, bent down and wrote out some other Torah things to, to, to highlight some ways that they could think about this differently. Or maybe, I mean, it's all a guess. I, this is my favorite idea is that he bends down and he, he's like, Sally, and looks over at one of the Pharisees and he's like, Jenny. <laughs> and a guy slinks away, right? And before you know it, everybody is gone. Because what does he say? Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. He's saying to them, He's not saying the law of Moses needs to be thrown out. He's saying if, if you're going to take it as seriously as you're taking it, we would all and we should all find ourselves guilty. See, the Pharisees found it so easy to look past their own sin of self-righteousness and spiritual pride and nitpick and highlight the sin of everyone else. Jesus, in one of his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses this uh, a metaphor of a log and a speck. And he says, don't take the speck out of one, your brother's eye. Instead, take the log out of your own. Then you will be able to. Why? Because when you take the log out of your own, you'll have compassion on the person who has a speck. And it'll give you some perspective on them. So often we might hear the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. But what Jesus is saying is love the sinner, hate your own sin. And so, we start with this more formal teaching setting. We have that setting totally interrupted by Pharisees and a half-dressed woman and, and uh, some chaos and some questions and some doodling or writing in the dust. And by the end of this story, we have Jesus and the woman and a little conversation and I wonder if in this moment, as the woman is standing there, if she's expecting a thrashing from Jesus to bury her in shame. Because Jesus, of course, was the perfect one. If there was anybody in the room that could cast the first stone, it would be Jesus. In an honor-shame culture, to have been caught in this particular act, not only could have brought about a stoning, but certainly, if not that, would have provided her with a scarlet letter. The impact on which would have to do with community and her being kicked out, and it would have impacted the rest of her life. But instead, Jesus is kind gracious. He dignifies her, and He values her. He looks at her with eyes of compassion, not the eyes of contempt and disgust that came from the Pharisees. I want us to take just a moment and do a little simple exercise 
This exercise will tell each one of us a great deal about the nature of our spiritual journey. If you would, just close your eyes for just a moment, everybody in the room. And I want you to take a moment and imagine God thinking about you. What do you assume God feels when you come to His mind? Now, I would suspect that there's many in the room who know the right answer. But the right answer isn't the same feeling or thought about what He feels about you. Because maybe what comes to mind, and I know this to be true for some of you because I've had this conversation with you, is the feeling of anger. God's disappointed or maybe even disgusted. Because often we're convinced that it is our sin that first catches God's attention. And what God thinks about us does matter. A.W. Tozer, writer of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because how we understand Him to think about us impacts how we live and how we interact with Him. Right? If we think that rejection and disgust and anger are the feelings or the posture towards us from God, then oftentimes we will extend enormous amounts of effort to earn His approval, to be good enough, to somehow make Him proud of us, to somehow cause Him to move towards us. And if that's the case, when we find or we would say that we fail, then we live under a cloud of shame. Maybe you're a mom in the room and your, 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 your success is tied to your kids. When your kids aren't doing well, you aren't doing well, and you think, I'm not enough, I'm not doing it right. And, 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 and the idea is, I, God's, God's upset. Or maybe you're a student and you didn't get the grades you wanted. Oftentimes, this has to do with our family of origin. We grow up in a home where we get love when we get the grades or we get the, the job or we get the score the goal or the first chair. Or maybe the shame cloud comes when you had one too many drinks or it has to do with your relationship with food. But God's Posture is not of one of anger or disgust. Jesus' posture towards this woman is not disgust or anger, but delight and value. Mark chapter 1, we have a story of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River. And when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River, as he comes up out of the water, it says this, that he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him, on Jesus, like a dove. So we have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in this one story. And a voice comes from heaven, from the Father. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now sometimes we think of God and we think, this is my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
I don't think it was like that. I think it was God leaning over the balcony of heaven. Hey, that's my boy. Oh, ah, I, love, I love him. Oh, with you. So I'm so pleased. You know what? At that point, Jesus had not performed one miracle. He had not walked on any water. He had not raised anybody from the dead. Nothing. His delight, his pleasure was not in response to having done something well. Just because he's his son. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, as a son or a daughter of God, that's exactly what God thinks about you. He says, daughter, I love you. It's my daughter. I love her. I'm so pleased with you. And you're like, yeah, but do you know what I did yesterday? He's like, I, I know. I love you. See, God's heart bursts with love and delight for you. He's giddy about you. He's head over heels for you. Can't get enough of you. Too often we think that it's all about duty first before we'll experience the delight of God, but God actually gives delight and pours out His delight on us as a motivation for the things that He has for us to do. There's a pretty famous sermon written a few hundred years ago uh, by a guy named Jonathan Edwards, pretty famous pastor in America. He was a Puritan, and he wrote a, a sermon and preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Actually, it has had a pretty uh, profound effect into the cultural idea of Christianity. I just want to state something here today that's wrong. If you read the sermon, it talks about God like dangling people over hell out of his disgust and anger at them. That is not the nature and the picture of who God is. The sermon should be called sinners in the hands of a loving, loving God. And he's not doing this. He's doing everything he can to rescue them. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created humans on the sixth day. And at the end of that day, he said, oh, it is very, very good. And he just has absolute delight for the masterpieces of his and crowning jewels of his creation. And when sin enters into the world and the serpent questions God's love for them and his desire for their best when the curse enters and everything of his world is broken. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so mad at you. No, out of his love and his delight, he says, oh, I love my creation so much. I've got to do something about it. God's not mad at you. God loves you. And nothing has ever changed from Genesis chapter one when he says, this is very good. Brendan Manning in his book, Abba's Child, says God loves who we really are, whether we like it or not. And so I don't know where you find yourself in here today, but God says to you today that he can't get enough of you. He can't get enough of you. Rachel, he can't get enough of you. Ellie, he delights in you. He enjoys being around you. Mandy, he just can't get enough of being around you. Rose, he thinks, oh, that apple of my eye. Delights just enjoys you. Now, you might be asking the question, but what about the sin? 
I mean, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. There's no getting around it. There's no parsing this out. There's no... So does, does it mean then that to, for Jesus to be gracious, we just overlook it and, and we just, you know, sin doesn't matter? It's not what happens here. Because actually in the very end of the story, the line, Jesus says, go and leave your life of sin. He names it. He identifies the reality of it. And sometimes we think that love is just all about like ignoring or we, we maybe, maybe you bend more towards the, the rule side and, and you're like, oh, we've got to make sure, though. See, love is God's character. It's not a fuzzy emotion. It's not an emotion that fluctuates depending on our actions. I mean, what a small God we would have if divine character was dependent upon our behavior. But Jesus in his love in this story does not ignore her sin. He has grace towards her. And by naming the reality of this situation, he highlights the truth. See, there is this divine intersection of grace and truth. See, when there's... When is it? Grace without truth is meaningless. And truth without grace is mean. But the goal is both, grace and truth, which brings about restoration brings about restoration. And that's exactly what Jesus does with this woman. He dignifies her and he restores her standing in the community. One of the things that we see also in this conversation and story is that Jesus moves towards sin and suffering, not away from it. So do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus' deepest impulse and most natural instinct is to move towards you in love? When you binge porn again after promising not to, do you see him moving towards you in love? When you scream at your kids in anger again, do you see him moving towards you in love? When you're cynical in church and gossip about your city group leader, Nervous laughter. <laughs> Do you see him moving towards you in love? See, Jesus left heaven to save his beloved creation. He moved right into the mess. The mess and the brokenness of the world. He didn't stand outside of it. He actually entered into it and experienced it himself. Jesus is moved with compassion for the lost. Jesus welcomes the outcast. He befriends the sinner. He finds his friends in their failure, and he stands with the victim. Jesus moves towards us because God is determined to restore us. Now, what's unfortunate about our experiences for some of you in this room is that, is that you might see this in Jesus, but this is not how you've, been, how you've experienced other followers of Jesus. There's a lot of talk in our day and age about church hurt. And without a doubt, within, because there's humans involved in the kingdom of God and in church, there is bound to be bumps and hurts. And that's why the Apostle Paul always is encouraging, forgive one another, bear with one another. 
But there are also ways in which abuse and other ways of using and objectification as indicated by the religious leaders of the day, there are ways that it is an egregious and absolutely horrible reflection of who God is. Because you were, how you were treated when you blew it was more like the Pharisees than it was like Jesus. There was no compassion. And I just want to say to you today, that was, that was not right. And I'm so sorry that happened to you. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The way that it's supposed to be and the reality of it is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 that says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are, lavished in love, not loathed in shame. This is who we are, children of God. See, the enemy uses shame to keep you from God. Well, Jesus uses mercy to draw you near. Paul taught us that it is kindness, that the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So the question for all of us as we land this conversation is who are you in the story? Who are you in the story? We regularly like to read stories and insert ourselves as the hero. But it's important that we're honest. Some of you in this might find yourself being the Pharisee. You really admire yourself. And you admire your morality and judge the lack thereof of others. You find somebody else's sin really egregious and yours is not as big of a deal. It's easy for you to look past your own sin and look at the sins of others. Maybe you like real rules a lot and you love holding other people to it. Or maybe you're the woman. doesn't mean that you're a fe- just a female. This applies to both genders in the room. But you find yourself living under a cloud of shame. And you don't need Jesus or others to give you a thrashing because you give yourself a darn good one. And the thrashing that you give yourself says, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve it. I'm not worthy of love. the heart of the Father to you is delight. And I think it breaks the heart of God when that's your posture towards you and it's not His posture towards you. As I've been preparing and praying for this message, my hope is that there is ways that somehow that message and that idea and that reality of God's love for you breaks through. Because it can change everything. It can change everything. There's a story in Luke chapter 15. This is a parable that Jesus teaches. And in this particular parable, he has, it's the parable of a father with two sons. And one son, like the woman, gone off and made a mess. But when that son comes home, you know what the father does? He runs down the street and he wags his finger at him and says, I can't. No, he doesn't. 
he runs down the road at him and he puts uh, his arms around him. The son thinks, I just need to be a servant just so I can get some food in my belly. But what does he do? He restores him to the family. This is my boy's home, everybody. It's party time. Come on, everybody. And they throw a big party. He puts his robe on him. He puts his sandals on him. He gives him a ring. He says, oh, my son is home. He restores him. He heals him. There's another son in the story. It's the older son who finds out that his younger delinquent brother has come home. And a party's being thrown for him. And what does he get? He gets resentful. And he says to the dad, hello, I've been doing everything right. I didn't run off and waste money and go spend time and energy on prostitutes like your other son did. I'm the good son. Where's the party for me? And you know what the father says to him? Everything I have is yours. Like you've been living in the house, but you've been missing out on the reality of everything that's available to you. And he invites him into the story. Invites him into the party. And the story ends in that particular case, and we don't know if he came in. But both are welcomed into the house. Both are welcomed into receive of the Father's extravagant love. We know one did. Where are you? Will you? Jesus sees you, whether you're the woman or the Pharisee, and calls you home. He says, come home. Come home. The goal in this, of this, though, is to find ourselves in Jesus. Not only in need of him and his mercy and love and grace to be, understand how he sees us, but is then for us to see others as he sees us. Jesus puts his honor on the line as a rabbi in good standing in this community to protect her. Will you be like Jesus? And for some of you, are like, oh, I so want to be like that. I so want to see people like that. Well, we cannot give what we do not receive. And so our weekly practice this week is for all of us to sit in silence for three minutes every day, imagining God delighting in you. Now, I hope you do this more than just this week, but because it, it's a powerful practice to be able to, to understand and live in the reality of what that's all about. Just to close your eyes. And imagine God, a big, massive smile on his face. Jesus, maybe just sitting next to you, just enjoying your presence. Enjoying you. Can't get enough of you. Just like lingering with you, talking with you, hearing about you and what's going on. Wants to share with you the Father's love. And for some of you in here, maybe it's your first time in church, your first time in church in a long time. And maybe the reason you have been out way is because you thought, ah, I, I'm not supposed to be there. I, I did this. I'll come back when I clean myself up. Whatever the case might be, God is saying to you, will you come home? Will you come home? Whether you identify with the Pharisee or you identify with the woman, will you come home? And if that's you here today, maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time, will you just simply and sincerely under your breath say, Jesus, I give you my life. And really what we're doing is we're saying, like, I, I want to open my heart and receive of the delight of the Father. I want to live out of the delight of God. I want to know. I don't want to live under shame. I don't want to be driving and striving. I want to 
I just want to live under the love of God and live out of that reality. Not out of a should, but I want to because I just love God so much. No, He loves me so much. Wherever you find yourself here this morning, I want to pray, Father. Father, I pray that you, your love would break through. Break through the self-righteousness, break through the shame. No matter what we've done or what we've not done, no matter where we've come from, no matter how much we have or don't have, Holy Spirit of God, I pray by your power, you would help us to get a revelation of your delight in us. The smile that breaks across your face, the swelling of your heart towards each one of us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that the love of God wash over every heart, break through every piece of shame, break through every chain of self-righteousness, that each one of us would live out of the reality of your love and your delight, that we as a house would be known as a place of the delight and the love of God, the, the divine interaction of grace and truth, that brings about healing and restoration. Jesus, we need your love. We welcome your delight. Do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.